Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning, church. The reading for this morning is from John chapter 7, verse 3, to John 8, verse 11. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple court, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, He straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and lead your life of sin. Amen. Amen. Father Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord God, we pray for Ian as he comes to give your word. Help us to have hearts that are receptive, ears to be willing to listen. And Father, help us, Lord, to leave this place transformed that will bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Great job. It's my privilege to be able to introduce Ian Galloway. Um, I got to know Ian because uh, we started our John's Gospel series a little bit uh, of time ago, and I was doing some research, and I came across this excellent commentary um, it's more than a commentary, really. It's sort of an de- almost devotional book and insight into John's writing and the structure and how has he written it the way he has. And you'll probably discover a lot of where I've got things from <laughs> um, are in this book. But I then reached out to Ian, and he very graciously gave me about an hour or so just to ask him some questions to help. How do we teach it? How do we do that uh, really well? I just felt a real connection to him. He is a man who just... Uh, Every part of him, he's just got a love for God and a passion for uh, people to know God more intimately. And he's had a great history. He's done so much already. Um, Planted a church in Newcastle, which he then led and has grown up. Part of the New Frontiers family of churches, which we're a part of. Just like an Antioch church, which has then sent out and planted other churches. And he's now based in Durham, where he is training up ministers and teachers in the free church. It is such a blessing to have him with us, not least because only a few weeks ago he had an operation. Um, So could you massively just give him a real massive warm round of applause. Let's welcome him up to show our appreciation. 
Thank you, Howard. Thank you, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here with you. And uh, excuse me sitting down. I'm not used to uh, teaching sitting down. This is a, this is a new thing for me. Uh, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago. I had a little operation, so I'm feeling a bit tender. Uh, but here I am. And uh, can we, let's have the first slide. I, I wanted to show you where I work. Okay, so I work for Cramner Hall in Durham. That's the centre of Durham with the amazing Norman Cathedral. And that little white arrow is where I work. You know, it's grim up north, isn't it? So um, I'm living the dream. Having led City Church for 33 years, I'm now training people to be church leaders and to, to be in ministry. And Cramner Hall's been training people for church leadership for over 100 years. And uh, I'm responsible for everybody who's not training to be an Anglican. So I've got Pentecostals and Baptists and free evangelicals and new churches and all kinds of people. Um, 32 students this year. Uh, it's a fantastic place to be, fantastic place to work, and uh, very, very beautiful indeed. So, moving swiftly on, three things I want to say to you about the Gospel of John before we kind of look at that reading we've just had. The, f- the first is this. Uh, the author is an eyewitness. When you're reading John's Gospel, you're reading an eyewitness account. You know, every story in the Gospel of John, we know where it happens and we know when it happens. Every single story has been placed on a calendar using the Jewish festivals as a timeline, and each story has been linked in time to the next one. So at every point, we know where we are and we know when we are. There are detailed descriptions of places and events. They're most unconsciously written. Okay, they're kind of written without really thinking about it. They're written, they're never the main point, but they are there. They're the kind of thing that you would write if you'd been there and you're an observant kind of a person, maybe even used to taking notes. You know, some people go through life, they never seem to notice what's happening around them. I don't know if you're one of those people. But there are people who really, really notice what's happening around them. And the author of John's Gospel is one of those people. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Uh, The pool where the man was healed has five colonnades. The grass is green at the feeding of the 5,000. The man who had his ear cut off at the arrest of Jesus was a relative of the high priest, and the author even knows his name. And you may notice some of those little details even this morning. And in my view, the eyewitness standard of John is very, very, very high. So Luke, when he writes his gospel, he's very upfront about it. He says, look, I went and talked to people and read stuff. Quite a long time after the event, you know, a few decades after the event. In my view, John was either there himself or talked very shortly afterwards. In just one or two instances, talked very shortly afterwards to the people who were there. It wouldn't surprise me if he took notes as he went along. When you're reading John, you're right up in the action. Second thing I want to say is this. The author knows Jesus extremely well. The author of John's Gospel, in my view, is probably Jesus' best friend. There's this 
thing that happens in the gospel where there's an unnamed disciple who is there all the time. We never get to know his actual name. The very first thing that Jesus does in the gospel is invite two people round his house for a late lunch and a long chat. And very quickly we get to know the name of one of those people. It's Andrew who then invites his brother Simon. But we never get to know the name of the other person who's there. And that unnamed disciple appears all the way through the gospel. When we get to chapter 13, he acquires something of an identity. He gives us a clue. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. What an extraordinary way to describe yourself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. You might think that's quite an arrogant thing to say, but actually it's the other way around. It's a very humbling thing to say. That I'm somebody that Jesus reached towards. I am somebody whom Jesus got hold of. I am somebody whom Jesus got to know. I am somebody whom Jesus loved. And he is the only male disciple at the cross, which says an awful lot about who he is, but we haven't got time to cover that. He is a witness to the cross. And as Jesus dies in that terrible, humiliating, painful way, Jesus gives his mother into the care of this man, and he gives this man into the care of his mother. He knows his mother is going to need another son, and he knows this friend is going to need a mother. And so sitting behind the Gospel of John are the two people in the whole world who know Jesus the best, his best friend, and his mum. And the third thing I want to say is this, that the gospel has been written so that you can meet with Jesus and become his friend. You know, I don't know if you ever asked yourself that question. How, how can I be friends with Jesus now? How can I meet Jesus now? You know, when we make friends with each other. There are things we can do, aren't there? We go for walks, we go for beers, we, we go for coffee, we play games, we have chats. You know, how can I do that with Jesus now? How in a meaningful way can I be a friend of Jesus now? But actually, when you think about it, what we're doing when we have our beers and our coffees and our meals and our chats and our games and our holidays together is we're telling each other our story. You know, for you to get to know me, you have to hear my story. And you have to hear quite a few of my stories to really get to grips with who I am. And I need to hear yours. You need to watch me in action. You need to sort of see the way I do things and how I respond to people and situations. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I behave in a moderately consistent manner. And so when you get to hear my story... You don't just hear what happened, you get to see the me that's behind the story, that's kind of giving rise to the story. And the gospel has been written like a beautiful house that when you go inside it, you begin to hear the story of Jesus in exactly the same way in exactly the same way as if you were having a beer or having a coffee or having a walk or having a meal, 
And the way it's been written, it's very, very beautiful, it's very, very elegant, but it's been written with this purpose that you don't just hear about what happened, but you meet the person of Jesus and become his friend. And my prayer for us, even this morning, and certainly my prayer for you as you read the gospel together, is that you don't just get to grips with the Bible. You get to meet a person and love him and are loved by him. And I say more about this in in my book, but the gospel has been deliberately constructed so it creates a space where that can happen. And there there are stories in the gospel that belong to each other. They're like groups of stories that all belong to each other. I call them narrative panels. Because once you've heard three or four of my stories, or you know, how the fun I had with my kids, or the way I, I, I love my wife, or the, the fascination I have with scuba diving, once you've heard three or four of my stories, you begin to really see me. And John's Gospel is working in that kind of a way. But you know, there's one story that stands all by itself in the Gospel. It doesn't fit in with a group like any of the others. And what's interesting is that the historical textual evidence of the gospel says exactly the same thing, which is why if you were reading it in your Bible as we read that this morning, it may have been in italics. Because the textual evidence suggests that this story sort of sits slightly apart from the others. You know, before printing, books were copied by hand, very, very carefully, very, very diligently. But small errors did creep in. And that enables historians to kind of trace the copying of the gospel as it develops. Very tiny errors make no real difference to the meaning, but you can see them. And very, very early in the copying of John's gospel, this story that we read this morning was either added in or taken out. Either somebody went for a coffee and came back again and forgot to write it. Or it was added in. So one whole set of the copies has it in and one whole set doesn't have it in. And so the textual evidence says the same as the narrative evidence. This story speaks for itself. It doesn't make it less true. It just makes it more interesting. This is a story that stands by itself and speaks for itself. So let's go inside, shall we? And meet with Jesus. Are you up for that? Man, are you up for that? Thank you. Verse 3, chapter 8. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Whoa. The drama. The drama. Point number one. Sin is real. Quite unusually, almost uniquely, this story focuses our attention on that reality that sin is real. Because... All the other stories, a lot of what they're trying to do is help you find Jesus and be his friend. 
We don't actually touch into sin very often. It's often peripheral. It's present, but it's not central. In this story, all by itself, it's central. Sin is real, people. John's way of describing sin is to call it darkness. And we first meet the darkness of sin in the, very, in the fifth verse of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And if the world is in darkness, says John, and Jesus has come as a light into a dark place. That's the reality. Sin is real, says the Gospel of John. And of course, he's drawing on Isaiah here. You know, when you read John's Gospel, you may not realize this, you're reading the entire Old Testament as well. He just didn't bother to point it out to you. He just wrote it in underneath. And in that verse, he's written Isaiah in underneath. Isaiah chapter 60 says this, Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. Jesus has come as a light. But see, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples. Double mention of darkness again. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. But as John knows only too well, Jesus coming as a light into the darkness of the world was not received by everybody. Chapter 3, verse 19, he says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. Sin is real, people. That's what this story starts with. Sin is real. Injustice is real. Murder is real. Greed is real. Deception is real. Violence is real. Cruelty, theft, abuse, rape, neglect, exploitation, dehumanization, treading on the poor are all real. Darkness is real. People love darkness. And this story opens with that reality. You know, I've been studying and teaching the Gospel of John for over 20 years, and the more I've studied it, the more convinced I've become that the author knows the Apostle Paul. And if he doesn't know him personally as a friend, he certainly read his, his work very, very carefully. The Apostle Paul was a church planter and a church leader in the first century, and a significant part of the New Testament is made up of his writing of letters to the churches he had helped to start. And John knows Paul, oh, has at the very least read Paul very carefully. Why do I think that? Because they have so much in common. They follow the same line of theological thought. And what we're going to do this morning, it's a bold move, I know, we're going to put the Gospel of John, that story, side by side with some of Paul's writing in the book of Romans. And Paul opens Romans with exactly the same thing. Sin is real. You know, after saying hello... In chapter 1, the first half of chapter 1 of, of the book of Romans, 
Paul starts this really long theological argument that goes on for like 11 chapters with this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Sin is real, he says. Sin is real. People are living without God. They're godless. People are living lives that are not right. They're unrighteous. And to do that, they have to suppress the truth. They have to stop the truth coming out. You know, it's an observable reality that when people or societies start to go off course, one of the first casualties is telling the truth. If you can suppress the truth, you can open up the darkness. And what happens next, according to Paul? Well, verse 21, they, they knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The darkness of sin affects the heart and the mind. People think in futile ways. The center of who we are becomes foolish and dark. You think, well, what will God do? Well, God acts in judgment. God does not leave cultures in that state. But the work of God is surprising. God doesn't try and stop this. He makes it worse. Romans 1.24, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity. That's Paul's argument. It's the same as this story. Sin is real. You turn away from God, your heart becomes dark, and you lead an impure life. It's an inescapable reality of the human condition. Now, for the first century Jewish person reading this story, this whole section is just like a normal critique of the pagans. This goes all the way back to Noah. We know this is true, okay? Why are you reminding us? We all know this. People are evil. The world is full of it. Nothing ever changes. Sin is real. Injustice, murder, violence, deception, and adultery are all real. I'm here to tell you that Jesus loves you. That Jesus loves you completely and compassionately. And John's gospel is here to tell you that God so loved the world that he gave his son. But both John and Paul agree on this, that God's self-giving love comes to a dark and distorted, broken world. And that God's Son giving love comes towards dark and distorted and broken people. Sin is real. And in this story, in very stark terms, we see the reality and darkness of sin in all its destructive ugliness. They brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. And God hates adultery. 
God hates unfaithfulness in committed relationships of any kind. And one of the conclusions of this story is that we cannot and we must not marginalize the reality of sin in our world. Now, I believe in encouragement. Okay, you'll be glad to know. I believe in speaking truth and strength to the people around me. But I read and I see so many things today, and many of them have a kind of christian veneer that seem to deny this reality. You're amazing. You're unique. Fulfill your potential. It's not the whole truth. You are amazing. Amazingly prone to sin. You are unique. You sin uniquely. <laughs> you do have potential, huge potential, to sin, to be nasty, to be cruel, to be lazy, to be untruthful, to be unfaithful, to be mean, to be unkind, to be selfish, to be self-indulgent. Sin is real. Point number two, sin includes me. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. You know, one of the big points about this story is that when we talk about sin, we're talking about ourselves. I'm talking about my self when I talk about sin. I am not talking about that woman, he said, pointing to a man, just to be on the safe side. I am not talking to that woman over there. We're not talking about that group over there who do those terrible things that we'll never do. Sin is pervasive. Sin is a disease that everybody has. There is no vaccine against sin. Because at the end of the story, there's only one person left with the woman who qualifies against the criteria of having no sin. 
And that's Jesus. That's the line Jesus draws on them. He says, okay, here we are as a group. Fine, you want to, fulf- you want to carry out the law of Moses, right? If you don't have any sin, you can throw the stones, okay? That's fine, that's the deal. And then one by one, they all go away. Lovely little detail. The older ones first. (laughs) Sin includes me. And Paul makes exactly the same point in Romans. When we talk about sin, we're talking about us. It isn't just the pagans who sin. It's Israel. It's God's people who have the same problem. Chapter 2 and verse 1 of Romans. You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. See, the thought is exactly the same. The sto- it's like the story in John and the first 11 chapters of Romans are the same thing. Paul's conclusion is the same as John. Sin is real for everyone. Sin includes me. We get up to verse, chapter 3 of, uh, and verse 9. He says this, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. There's no one who's righteous. Not even one. Should we, t- we do it here? Should we do a throwing of the stones test here? It'd have exactly the same result. And you know, we cause huge problems in the church when we say sin is the problem of those people over there who are not like us. People look at us and they say, hmm, well, I don't want to become a Christian then. Bunch of judgmental, self-righteous bigots. Why would I want to become one of those? We have to find ways of talking about sin that aren't judgmental and self-righteous. We have to be real about sin because sin is real. But we have to find ways of talking about it that include ourselves and are not judgmental and self-righteous and finger-pointing. Otherwise, you know who you are in this story. You're the people holding the stones. And who wants to be in that group? Point number three. The root of sin is unfaithfulness to God. You know, we should not be surprised that John chooses this story. In John, because the focus is on Jesus, there's no detailed list of sins. There's only one sin in John, unfaithfulness to God. Being unfaithful to God means being close to God, not believing in God, not receiving God's word, turning away from God's messenger, turning away from God's son. And in the Old Testament, Oh, unfaithfulness to God is called by the prophets adultery. 
what the prophets proclaim is that God's people are acting in adultery towards God. And for John, as indeed the whole of the Old Testament, all sins flow from this one sin of turning away from God and being unfaithful to God. And this is the story that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Hosea is where we see it best. Hosea the prophet does this extraordinary thing. He enacts this problem in his own marriage. Hosea 1 verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And adultery is a sort of picture, a terrible picture of what God's people have been doing to God. And adultery towards God leads to all these terrible consequences. Hosea unpacked some of them in, in chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, church. The Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land, only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all the bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up. And those who live in it waste away. And the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. Whoa. It's pretty contemporary stuff. But the next verse in Hosea is very, very interesting. Let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. As in everything in the Gospel of John, the Old Testament's just below the story. Hosea is just below that story we've read in chapter 8. This is a story of a woman caught in adultery and how Jesus saved her. But it's also a story of how Israel, God's people, are caught in adultery against God and how God saved them. And it's also a story of how the whole of humanity is being unfaithful to God and how Jesus has come to save the world from this. But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. But you know, before this woman can be saved from this terrible predicament that she's in, there are two massive obstacles that have to be overcome. Before Israel can be saved, there are two massive obstacles that have to be overcome. Before the world can be saved, there are two massive obstacles that have to be overcome. Obstacle number one, God's law condemns sin and pronounces judgment on the sinner. Oh, goodness me. I mean, this is the point the Pharisees make in the story, is it not? The teachers of the law, we're in verse 3 now, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they're not wrong. God's prohibition against adultery is in the top 10. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. It's right up there with not stealing, not killing people, and not resting properly from your work. 
It's right up there with those things, those problems. Killing and stealing and not resting. And the judgment on both parties is severe. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now, did Jesus modify this at all, okay? Well, if we jump out of John's Gospel into Matthew, just for a moment, we find out terribly that Jesus raises the bar on adultery. He doesn't lower the bar, he raises the bar. For Jesus, adultery is not just stopping short of the act of adultery. It's stopping the thought process that leads to adultery. You can read that in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. That is very, very bar-raising. And Jesus suggests radical action. Better chop it off now before potentially facing God's judgment. I mean, this is really apocalyptic language. This is the Middle Eastern way of saying, this really matters, people. Sexual immorality and adultery actually really, really matters. Chop it off rather than go to hell. And this is Paul's conclusion in Romans. We know whatever the law says, it says to those under the law that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, by the law, we become conscious of sin. God's law condemns sin and pronounces judgment on the sinner. Obstacle number one. Obstacle number two. Yeah, aren't you glad you came to church? <laughs> this will end well, as the story did. Obstacle number two, the law is powerless to stop the sin. The law doesn't help me. This is huge. You know, in John 8... The law of Moses has been taught in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And what do we find? A woman caught in adultery. And a man who could either run faster or who was deliberately let off. 2,000 years later, what do we find? What do we find in Durham, in London, in Moscow, in Washington, in Lagos, in Berlin, in Beijing, in Shiraz, in Tokyo, in Sydney? What do we find? Adultery. The law of Moses has been known for thousands of years. And this is Paul's version of this very issue in chapter 7 of Romans. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. 
And what Paul goes on to describe in Romans chapter 7 is Israel struggling under the law. And to do that, Paul identifies himself completely with Israel. He uses the word I, like the psalmists do. He says, what, what I know I should do, I can't do. What I know I shouldn't do, I do do. And he, he ends with this terrible cry, who will deliver me from this body of death? The law isn't helping us. The law has been given to Israel and it's not helping us. And this is true not just of Israel, but of all cultures and all people. All people everywhere struggle to live up to an agreed morality without God. Left to themselves, all cultures corrupt themselves. That is the reality of the human condition. And you can see that in Russia, you can see that in in. Iran, you can see that in America, you can see that in the United Kingdom. Two massive problems. What does Jesus do? Phew. Thank God. We're nearing the end. What does Jesus do? Well, several things, all of them good. Turn to somebody near you and say to them, thank God we've got to this bit. <laughs> what does Jesus do? Well, number one, the voices of accusation are silenced. You know, this story in John is totally beautiful. Sin is still sin. Adultery is still wrong. But all around the woman, it's gone very, very, very quiet. You hear the sound of stones falling to the ground. And you hear the sound of feet walking away. And then you hear nothing but two people breathing and one man doodling in the dust. The voices of accusation are silenced. Jesus straightened up and asked a woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares. And this is Paul's version of that reality. Chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. In our story, Jesus saves the woman. The voices of accusation are silenced. 
In Romans, Paul is looking back on what Jesus has done. Paul is speaking, looking back at the reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection and saying, that makes this real for you people. And in John, Jesus is looking forwards to that reality. He's speaking, looking forwards to the cross and the resurrection. Jesus does not condemn her because Jesus is going to be condemned himself. He's going to take her sin on himself. So, how quiet has it gone for you? Have the voices of your accusers been silenced? You know, often those voices come from within. Have you believed Jesus? Now, I've been married for 41 years. I'm onto my third mattress. We spend a lot of money on our mattresses. They last a good length of time, but not indefinitely. They're very comfortable. Every night I go back to the same place. I sleep on the same mattress. It's very comfortable. This place is our mattress of rest. This place is where we go back to, where all voices of condemnation are silenced. Not because of my action, but because of the crucifixion of Christ. All voices of accusation are silenced. How quiet is it? For you. There is now no condemnation, says Paul, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you on that mattress now? While we were still powerless. Christ died for us. Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. Point number two, a new life is offered free from sin. Then, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now in a completely new direction. And this is Paul's version of this story Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It is not carry on as you were for this woman. It's go in a completely different direction. You know, if you think that the grace and the love of God means you can carry on sinning and it doesn't matter, you haven't understood the grace and love of God. The grace of God, the love of God, the gift of God empowers us to live in a new way. It's an offer of life free from the power of sin. Praise God. And it's a new life, number three, offered apart from the law. 
You know, this is what Jesus enacts with the woman. At the end of the story, sin is still sin. Adultery is still wrong. The law has not been abandoned or disregarded. But what Jesus does not say is, the law doesn't matter anymore. He doesn't say right and wrong don't matter anymore. He's just, he doesn't say, oh, God just loves you. It doesn't matter. Jesus is very definite on this point. There is a new life to be led, free from sin and free from adultery. But this isn't more law coming back over the woman because we know the law is powerless. It doesn't work. The law has been silenced and sent out of the room. This is not the tiptoeing back of the law. This woman needs to be saved and the law cannot save her. The law is powerless because of her sin. This woman needs another power at work in, in her life. And it's what Jesus says to her that's the power to live the new life. In Christ we die to the law and live by the Spirit, says Paul. Romans 7 verse 4, my brothers and sisters, you died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, might marry another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We have been released from the law and serve in the new way of the Spirit. There's a new way to live, church. It's not coming back under the law. There's a new way to live that doesn't deny the law, but leads to the fulfilling of the law. There's a new way to live free from the power of sin. It's not perfection, but it's going in that direction. It's a life free from condemnation, where all the accusing voices are silent. It's a life where the Word of God, the Word of Jesus, has power to bring change into our hearts and this is the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah Jeremiah 31 says this the days are coming declares the Lord I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. They broke my covenant though I was a husband to them. The problem of adultery again. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts hearts. I'll put my law. You came at a good time. It's okay. I'll put my law, says God, in your heart and write it on your mind. I'll put my law in your heart. I'll write my law inside you. Amen. Are you married? No? No? I need a married person. Are you married? Excellent. Are you married? Oh, good. Even better. You know, the word of God says to you, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a high bar, isn't it? And God says, I'm going to write that inside you. You know, obedience to God is not 
trying hard to live up to a standard that's impossible to reach. Obedience to God is living out what God has written in. Are you married? That's right on you. (laughs) Husband, husband, love your wife as Christ. As Christ loved the church. Wow. Not love the church as Christ loves your wife. It's the other way around. I'm safe. It's a new covenant. It's not writing on tablets of stone that are impossible for us to do. It's writing into our hearts the way to live to please God. And if you want my opinion on this, this is why Jesus doodles in the dust. He knows that we're dust. He knows that our hearts are made of mud, that we're dusty and dry. But Jesus can write God's ways in the dust. Jesus can write God's ways into your heart, people. This is not trying to live up to a standard that's impossible to reach. This is living out what God has written into you. Isn't that wonderful? This is the new covenant of grace. Obedience comes from within. God's love fills us. Jesus' word is spoken to us. Our lives are transformed by that. By the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, we are renewed. And this is the doctrine of grace. Sin is real. Sin includes me. The root of sin is unfaithfulness to God. And God's law condemns sin and judges the sinner. But the law is powerless. And then Jesus. Jesus meets the woman. Jesus meets the church. Jesus meets the world. And the voices of accusation are silent. A new life is offered free from sin, free from law. And the word of Jesus is written into my very being. Who's up for that? Who's up for that kind of life? We, from his fullness, have received grace. Upon grace. Shall we pray? Thank God you say. The band are going to come back. But let's take a moment to pray. Maybe you need to ask God. You need to ask Jesus to silence accusation.
to bring you to that place where it's just you and Jesus. And it's quiet. Maybe you need to drop your stone of judgment and criticism and accusation and come round the other side of the story. Maybe you need the word of Jesus to be spoken afresh that your life can be renewed and the word of God written in the dust of your heart. Just bring yourself to Jesus. Bring yourself to Jesus. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.